This episode, we're supposed to be heading to South America. However, we ended up a little bit north of our mark. I'll explain more later, but not to take away any more from today's topic, we'll be doing our first deity deep dive where we explore the existence of the Aztec Prince of Flowers. And for our fact, we're taking a look at the fathers of Colombia's LGBTQIA movement. And kudos to those who caught it. Yes, today we're going full triple D here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 9, The Americas, Part 1, Aztec Gay Deity. Hey, 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 how's everyone doing today as we enter into the month of March 2021? Bringing it in like a lamb, at least over here where I hang my hat in the American Midwest. Helping us to say hello to all of you today is the track Mr. Mischief doing its thing, as always, by the London Collective All Good Folks. Giving you our eight-legged logo is Arthur, and flowering you in with our beautiful podcast cover art is Jacqueline. Last and of course the least, we have me, your host, Gree Omenma, giving you all the cheesy play on words that you've come to groan at and expect on the podcast examining indigenous folklore the world over. Last episode, we started our second full trek around the globe and LGBTQIA-centric world tour with a stop in Zimbabwe, Africa. The Shona people gave us a look at the non-binary supreme being, Muari. Today would normally be reserved for taking a look at the folktales, legends, myths, and fairy tales of South America. However, in doing my research for this episode, I found my way to the Aztec civilization, which, as I'm sure you all know, existed in what is now central and southern Mexico. And Mexico, it ain't in South America. So this time around, I made a bit of an exception. I know, I know, you have so many questions. Why didn't I just use this for the North American episode? Why didn't I mention this plan last week? Why did I change the formula up now? Well, to answer the first question, Native American LGBTQIA themes, peoples, and stories were actually what helped inspire my entire world tour theme this time around. You'll see next episode the stories and concepts that I needed to be part of the podcast, meaning... Using today's episode for North America just wouldn't work. Secondly, I apologize for my outro last episode. I absolutely misspoke when I didn't 100% need to. I could have rephrased it much like I did for the title for this episode, but I falsely claimed that the society we'd be looking at today was in South America. In trying to keep with the theme and solely contain the departure to today's episode, I made a bad choice, and I apologize. And lastly... The formula is just a base coat, baby. It's our script. It's our foundation. It's our blueprint. But I'd like to think that it has a little bit more fluidity, which is a perfect jumping off point to delve into today's episode. Now, we won't be separating the culture and the myth because in today's story, there's a deity, not a story. Well, let me back up a little bit. There are plenty of stories. However, for the first time in my entire adult life researching these topics, I have not found a single recorded story that reads as a narrative involving the Prince of Flowers. We have information about him. And as you'll see, and as anyone who studies these things know, can tend to be contradicting. But we don't have something that has a narrative-type structure. Additionally, much of what we know about this god has been... Uh, how to word this? Uh, hmm. 
Let's say lost in translation. I mean, it's not completely accurate, but you'll see what I mean. So I'm going to walk through my sources and research and information, and together we'll learn about what made the Aztecs tick, why I chose Shoshe Pile, the patron of homosexuality and male sex workers, the gay Aztec deity, the Prince of Flowers, as the subject of today's episode. Once, very long ago, between 1300 and 1500 current era to be exact, there thrived the Aztec Empire, the dominant and what is considered to be the last ancient Mesoamerican society was extremely sophisticated and known throughout the time and geography for their fierce warriors, art and architecture, religion and philosophy, and agriculture and trade. We have a great deal of information about the Aztecs, especially as opposed to other ancient societies, which are given to us through archaeological endeavors, their own records, and of course, the totally not biased accounts of their conquerors, Spanish conquistadors, and Christian missionaries. I'm being facetious. They were totally biased. You can see the underpinnings of such an incredible society coming together as early as 1100 current era, where all of the city-states began competing for geographical resources and recognition. Each city-state was ruled by a local leader who presided over a council that governed what was usually a city surrounded by farmland. Over the next 300 years, smaller empires came together, fell apart, created alliances, and jockeyed for position before a great war rocked the area in 1428. Resulting from this war, three smaller city-states, Texcoco, Tenochtitlan, and Tlacopan, came to rule the land. Slowly but surely, Tenochtitlan came to rule the alliance, and it was firmly established as the capital city to the newly formed Aztec Empire. They didn't stop there, oh no! 1430 forward marked an expansion of the Aztecs as they drafted every able-bodied male in the empire to serve as soldiers. Led by ferocious eagle and jaguar warrior units, this army wore padded armor, donned shields covered in animal skins, and were armed with obsidian swords, throwing spears, and or bows and arrows, among other weapons. Battles would take place from city to city, and when one city-state was vanquished, all the surrounding land would then be claimed by the Aztecs, leading the kingdom to cover over 100,000 square kilometers. With millions of people spread all throughout what one day would be Central America, how did the empire maintain control? By concentrating power and resources through the heart of the empire, the Aztecs used surrounding land and cities to act as a buffer between them and warring, hostile, or simply unruly neighbors at their proverbial shores. They orchestrated a system of carefully appointed local officials, set up marriages to consolidate power, expected rituals and tributes paid by all principalities, and disseminated monuments, artwork, and beliefs that solidified and spread the core Aztec ideology. At the center of it all, the city-state that rose above so many others was the capital city, Tenochtitlan. Situated on the western shore of Lake Texcoco, the city swelled to between a quarter and a half a million people during the height of the empire. This made it basically the largest city in the hemisphere and one of the largest on the planet up until the 16th century. The social hierarchy of the city was rather rigid, 
though there is anthropological evidence that lower rungs were able to move back and forth. Standing on top of the world, metaphorically, was the high king. Then there were the local rulers. Next in line were the nobles, followed by the commoners, then the serfs, and finally slaves. As can be expected, the city was a gigantic trading outpost where anyone with means might be able to trade with or trade for gold and turquoise, cotton and tobacco, ceramics and tools, even tortillas and insects, which the ancient wise empire used for food, and weapons and slaves. Like other ancient cities, the Aztec capital boasted splendid canals and water management that allowed for primo regional agriculture, the ability to quickly manage devastating floods just as easily as community gardens, and reservoirs for fresh drinking water for the city's inhabitants. So if this sounds awe-inspiring, that's not only because it was, but it was purposely designed to be this way. The Aztecs wanted to show any visitor that the Aztecs were indisputably the masters of the universe. Now, before we jump into any He-Man shenanigans, let's take a look at the one piece of the puzzle that we've so far avoided. Yes, Tenochtitlan was the capital of the empire. Yes, Tenochtitlan was an engineering marvel and an urban hub like no other. But did you know that this city was also the physical embodiment of all the mythology and religion of the Aztec people? Okay, so maybe that's a little grandiose and unfair, but they did believe that their ancestors had first settled the land because they'd been shown the way by their god, the supreme being, Huitzilopochtli, god of war, the sun, and of sacrifice. Legend has it, well, one of the legends, that is. When migrating from one area, more than likely what is currently northwest Mexico, Huitzilopochtli sent an eagle to guide the people. When they discovered this eagle clasping a snake in its talons perched upon a cactus, they felt that a prophecy had come to pass. This was the spot that one day would exhibit the capital city and is actually the location of Mexico's capital, Mexico City, in the modern day. Huitzilopochtli was actually a god of the Aztec ancestors, which is par for the course with their pantheon. The Aztecs worshipped a mix of older Mesoamerican gods, Mexica deities, and they run more than 200 strong. The two principal deities are Huitzilopochtli and Laloc, god of the rain, both with temples in the heart of Tenochtitlan. One of the famed gods that some of you might recognize is Quetzalcoatl, the badass, feathered, dragon-like god of wind, air, and of learning, prevalent in many Mesoamerican cultures. There's a god of the night, god of agriculture, goddess of the earth, goddess of the water, and the princely subject of today's episode. Xochipile, the god of, well, many things. According to Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit, the entry for Xochipile is as follows, and this is a little longer of an entry. Here are some excerpts pieced together to give one cohesive definition. Xochipile, consort of the goddess Xochiquetzal, more on her shortly, is known by various names. Several of these appellations indicate that his worship spread beyond the Aztecs. Xochipile is a god of flowers and sensual pleasures. He is the patron of entertainers, dancers, singers, actors, jugglers, gymnasts, and game players. He is also the patron of perfumers. Like other deities, Xochipile brings not only joy, but also suffering, especially to those who fail to make sacrifices to him. They are likely to be stricken with venereal disease or hemorrhoids. 
in fact, in Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs. Hemorrhoids are referred to as the flowers of the anus, and this episode has just paid for itself. Soche Pile was honored with Soche Quetzal at the Festival of Flowers, as well as at the Feast for the Revered Ones. Held in the seventh month of the Aztec year, the Feast for the Revered Ones was an unusual festival in that human sacrifice played no part in it. In ancient text, this was represented by a man arranging, or men exchanging, flowers. It was a time when great banquets were held which emphasized dainty and exotic dishes. Sexually employed slaves wearing flower garlands danced in the streets while noblemen reclined on couches surrounded by flowers, picking one up and laying it down, then choosing another. And we will leave out commentary if flowers is actually what it meant here. Sochepile is the patron of male homosexuality and male prostitution, as stated by David Greenberg, quoted ad nauseum, with no references to back this up. His patronage of individuals engaging in these behaviors suggests a complex set of associations, including the role of entertainers, the love of exotic foods and perfumes, male gender variants, and same-sex eroticism. Now, right off the bat, I am so sorry for my pronunciation. Let's be real, there are a lot of ancient words up in this piece, and I'm sure I will boff most of them. Secondly, I, uh, I went ahead and added some of my own commentary up there, so I, I'm sorry if it's confusing. I promise I'll try to quote, unquote, in the future, and I'll save my peanut gathering for after. As for our dissecting, let's go ahead and start up at Ye Old Top, consort of the goddess Soshiketzel. Immediate discrepancy. In most sources, Soshiketzel is listed as his twin sister, not as his consort. So we'll have to rephrase. Let's, let's say most often linked to. Hey, 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 hey. We, we all know how crazy myths can be. Electra, I'm sorry, girl, but I'm looking dead at you. So what works best? I think in this modern day, it's to establish what's been laid out before, and then the student, uh, the teacher, or best yet, the listener, that would be you, makes up their own mind. I've linked to an article, Mexico Lore, that explains it very deeply, and better than I ever could, speaking about how, perhaps, these two spoke more to the duality of, of the seasons, of plants, of fertility. I suggest checking the article as well as the entire site. Super deep concepts, and it's just really cool info. And speaking of sources, a few of them state that Soche Pile's wife is uh, Mayuel, the goddess of Maguey, its plant. However, Mayuel is also described as the human wife of the wind god. And if you're interested in a good uh, story slash myth, Check that one out. It, it's fairy tale perfection. So I'm just going to gloss right over this one because it's some sources. Like I said, not most. Besides, this is Soche Pile's episode. Speaking of, let's take a look at his actual name. Derived from two separate words, Soche comes from the Nahuatl word for flower. And Pile can mean either prince or child. Hence our youthful prince of flowers. So, 
Nah, we good, right? We have a young, gay prince of flowers, all about that good time, linked to a couple, couple females. Nope, not yet. Let's back on up to that gay part. David Bowles, a Mexican-American author and journalist, wrote a wonderful multi-part piece about Aztec queerness that we're going to jump into now. He states it wonderfully, and I quote, see what I did there? I quote, first off, it's important to note that we don't and probably never will fully understand the attitudes of pre-Columbian Nahuas toward individuals we now call LGBTQ+, or their roles in Nahua society. The racist, sexist, homophobic, religiously intolerant lens of the Spanish obscures the particulars, leaving only a few tantalizing clues. Furthermore, it's risky to impose our modern conceptualization of gender identity and sexual orientation on the Nahuas, because we're pretty sure these two perspectives are not the same. What does seem clear is that the Nahuas understood gender and orientation in ways the conquering Spaniards didn't. End quote. The conquering Spanish and this is so important because I don't see this mentioned in too many sources at all. The converted, the conquered locals that helped them to document the society that they were witnessing. They couldn't explain the same-sex relationships and gender-fluid identities that they witnessed, or they didn't want to. So, they reacted as most humans do when they don't understand something. They absolutely tried to decimate it, and in their records, they disparaged it every chance they got. One of the things we can do to try and learn about how the Aztecs actually thought about themselves is to look at their cosmological beliefs, how it wasn't structured as a fight between good and evil. It was a balancing act between chaos and order. Similar is what we spoke of earlier with the consort question. Male and female, not necessarily separate. It's just viewed as two sides of the same coin. So, Soche Pile and Soche Quetzal could be the same gender-fluid being. Balls continues through a brilliant and complex examination of the language itself about how trans individuals were part of the Aztec civilization before they were even known as Aztecs. We're talking about 10th century here. I implore you, please, please, please read this article. It shows the depths of queerness in Aztec culture, and I've read it five times, and I'm still not confident in my ability to reiterate it here to you today, so I've tried to pull out a couple of things that I felt help advance this episode and do Soche Pile some justice. Speaking of such, the Mesa Americana blog just, <laughs> I mean just like a few days ago, posted the beginning of a multi-part blog that is spectacular. That's all that I can confidently say in any intellectual capacity because I've only had the chance to read it once, and it is overflowing with information. It's great because the author questions the references of Castle's encyclopedia and questions the references of the references for factual clarity. Good. I'm glad. One of the reasons that we exist in the... In the murky area that we do today is because people either did not or, or better yet, could not question the authority on any subject or they, they kind of didn't have the ability to do so. We have access to a great wealth of information now. So 
we should all use that to our advantage. Question me. Question my references. Don't, you don't be an overt jerk or hateful about it. And I feel like you're going to do the world a great service. But I, uh, I am straying too far from our topic. The Prince of Flowers. The most famous representation of this deity comes from a statue currently located in Mexico City that dates back to the height of the Aztec civilization between 1450 and 1500 current era. Standing at just under four feet high and just over one meter high, Xochipile sits on a platform and is surrounded by butterflies and flowers. The deity himself is covered in plants, flowers, animal skins, and the god is perceived as happily singing playing rattles, and is the symbol of merriment and joy. There are many interpretations into uh, what type of plants are part of this statue, and you'll see casually thrown around in most sources that these are hallucinogenic mushrooms and plants, and that the god himself is in an altered state. It says that the sheer depiction of his eyes and super-wide pupils are a surefire sign that he is, in fact, tripping balls. I've included a website in the show notes which has an entire breakdown of every single carving in the statue, what it means, what it is, what it symbolizes, and what it does. But here, to further explore this, Mesa Americana has another wonderful piece, this one exploring Pile not exactly as a god, but as a state of being. Taking a look at the 1992 book by Schultz and Hoffman titled Plants of the Gods, Mesa Americana goes over their analysis of the nine levels of the Toltec Pyramid of Dreams. They state that the same statue that I reference above depicts Pile in the second state of dreaming, Temesach, which is the first step to conscious dreaming. This is more commonly known today as lucid dreaming. How did Pile reach this state? by plants that can intoxicate, of course. What's important to remember here is that plants and their effects on the human body and on human consciousness were extremely important and prevalent to the Aztec culture and society. I don't think that five, deep cut, episodes on this subject alone could do it justice. So I wanted to end with the simple parallel that Mesa Americana draws between Pile as a god and Pile as a potent, primal force of nature. So the simple question that I pose to you, aren't they, to many, one and the same? Because, according to the Aztecs, existing in what is modern-day central to South Mexico, all of this is just the beginning of the story when it comes to their gay deity, their young Prince of Flowers. Now, what I like most about today's tale is that it left us with more questions than it did answers. My immediate thought goes to a Reddit discussion slash argument that I'm not even going to link to here, where a few academics got into it about appropriation. Now, trust me, I'm not dissing any discussion about appropriation in any sense. I think these discussions need to be had, most definitely, but I'll boil it down for you. One person was celebrating Pile as the patron of homosexuality, and one person was telling them that's not what Pile was. Of course, they were not too keen on hearing that, and some not-no-nice hijinks ensued. 
Balls and Mesa Americana do a wonderful job navigating through this treacherous territory, and once again, I invite you to please check out their work. They talk at length about how it's it's not accurate for us to take our modern sensibilities and project that onto the past because we'd be wrong. Yes, they are correct. However, I would also like to speak for all the various blogs and tumblers and words of affirmation that I read from queer folks celebrating this potentially gay deity. They found validation and deification in something that the modern world doesn't really do all that much. To see one's ancestors awash in a lifestyle that you've been taught since your youth either doesn't exist or is an evil way to live is something that you hold on to very tightly. So in all honesty, I understand and I I applaud both sides to this argument, which isn't exactly something I normally do. My academic side recognizes the things that I've said and sometimes duly noted on this podcast itself, to look back and study the past as it was, not as you would like it to be. My activist side recognizes the want and the need to have icons and inspirations to live up to, to celebrate, to to recognize. Can't we do both, though? I know, I, I know that it's complex. Look at this episode. I feel like I whiffed on my deep dive and kind of just gave you a weird hodgepodge of facts, but I get it. It's crazy deep and it makes you go cross-eyed. But I'd personally rather a hard truth than an easy lie. Or at the very least, for me, to be aware of all sides of an argument and then decide which path to take. For this episode, I, I researched and I wrote and I rewrote and then rewrote some more and I'm still coming out the other side calling Sochepile a gay god, right? So though I'm not saying it, I'm probably still saying it about how I personally feel on everything we went over here today. And for our fact, we're going to take a look at Leon Zuleta, who alongside Manuel Vilendia originated the gay rights movement in Colombia. Now I'm going to apologize ahead of time because I couldn't find it any English language information about either of them. So I had to go to Google Translate. I'm sorry because I'm sure my pronunciations are terrible, and I just hope that my information isn't incorrect. Let's go back to Medellin, Colombia, 1976. A newspaper published an interview with a local college student who claimed membership to the group The Colombian Homosexual Movement, a a first of its kind, 10,000-member-strong group dedicated to legalizing same-sex love, relationships, and just existence. In Bogota, Manuel Valandia read this interview and was inspired. This type of group, this movement, was exactly what Manuel himself was hoping to create. Shortly, he was soon able to talk with Leon over the phone, and once the two were acquainted, Leon admitted to Manuel a secret. He told him, yes, It was true that the group had 10,000 members, but all those zeros, not true. What was true, the one. Leon was the only member of the yet-to-be-created group, and a wonderful friendship and movement were created. Born in 1952, Leon was a member of the Colombian Communist Youth Party until he was 19 years old. This is when he was kicked out of the party for openly declaring that he was gay. 
He began years of study at the University of Antioquia, where he majored in philosophy and letters, eventually becoming a professor. Once again, he was excommunicated, but this time, the reason was more murky. It could have been that he was gay. It could have been that he was a communist. Or it could have been that he was in support of trade unions. He was able to find work at the University of Nariño before also being fired when he returned home to work on writing and on fighting for same-sex liberties. Writing essays, poems, and stories, he submitted work to every magazine, newspaper, and journal that he could find. Leon considered himself a feminist, called himself queer, and openly held dialogues with anyone that he could. In fact, it wasn't too long after Leon and Manuel spoke on the phone about his Colombian homosexual movement that the two met in person. Manuel invited Leon to his house, and upon arrival, Leon immediately told Manuel that in order for them to properly debate, they must first engage in sexual intercourse. Understandably, Manuel was a little surprised, but Leon explained that he suggested this to anyone wishing to debate with him, that penetrating another and allowing yourself to be penetrated was the ultimate act of tossing away society's conception of domination and submission. This was, of course, something that earned Leon a reputation of not truly being of the cause, simply wanting to have sex with everyone. I speak of this not to denigrate Leon, actually the opposite. Manuel himself went on later on in life to explain about Leon, stating that this open sexuality, especially for the time, was not an erotic act. It was a political one. He would stage public demonstrations of gay sex as a statement against a system that segregated and discriminated against same-sex relationships. In 1979, the Colombian Homosexual Liberation Movement actually truthfully began, and in 1981, Colombia's anti-homosexuality law was repealed. By June of 1982, the first gay pride march was held in Colombia, organized and led by Leon and Manuel themselves. Almost prophetically, Leon was more prepared for his death than his colleagues. Leon would often speak of this to Manuel, riding on a bus. Leon suddenly kissed Manuel on the mouth, in plain view of other passengers. After doing this, Leon looked him in the eyes and said, We now need to be prepared for violence, perhaps even death. This memory was the first thing that came to Manuel's mind when he was informed of Leon's death in the 90s. Manuel himself was exiled from Colombia in 2007 after having run for political office in 2002 as the only openly gay political candidate in the country at the time. Due to a barrage of death threats against him and his family, a live grenade was straight up thrown at his house during his campaign. He currently lives in Spain, where he still champions LGBTQIA rights and sports rather wicked blue-dyed hair and thick-rimmed glasses. Though it happened almost 30 years ago, Leon's murder is still a thing of mystery. There wasn't even an investigation. No suspects were named. And subsequently, we know very little about what happened. What is known is that he was stabbed to death in his apartment. Was his murderer someone that was posing as gay, only to get close to him? Was it due to his communist beliefs? Or was it his unionizing? Was it simply a crime of opportunity? All we have now is speculation, and too little known, about a man who helped bring about a start to human rights for gay men, for same-sex relationships, for all lives and identities, living in Colombia, South America. And that's the show, folks. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for checking out our podcast as we took a look at the Aztecs and their LGBTQIA-friendly deity, Sochepile. Come with us again next week as we make our way over to as we stay in North America, where we'll be visiting not one, but two of the continent's Native American peoples to get their stories of what two-spirit means to them. A million thank yous goes out, as always, to all good folks and the amazing track that starts and finishes our show, Mr. Mischief. A billion thanks sent on out to Jacqueline for her podcast cover artwork, and a trillion thank yous find their way to Arthur for his podcast logo. If you, our audience, the best, the brightest, the most wonderful of us all, have any questions or comments about anything and everything, we would pretty much expect them to be about folklore, but they really can be about anything. Send them our way in an email to info at coloredfolklore.com. And if you're not hip to the email scene, check out our social media accounts at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're up at all of them with the same handle, Colored Folklore, all one word. And if you scoff at the social medias, we still got you covered. Take a peek at our website, www.coloredfolklore.com. Our ally page details friends of the show. Get all of our episodes in one convenient location. Maybe support us or others by clicking that donate button. But the best, the, the beyond best way that you can support the show or the community, the people, the stories, Leave us a rating and or a review at your podcast platform of choice. That helps others get an idea of what we're about. And actually, you know what? Better than all of the above, W-O-M. Word of mouth, baby. Tell someone. Tell anyone. Tell everyone. Tell a friend. Tell a family member. Send them a link to an episode. Give them the lowdown on your favorite myth. Have them send us theirs. Debate the misogyny of the old world. Dissect the bigotry of the new. Shoot them the info. Give them the 411. You know, buy into the culture. Send them a survey. Submit a JIRA ticket. Goal set in Asana. Conference at Confluence. Organize a Zoom. Slack a user story. Do all of the trendy tech corporate software things. Why, yes, I do work for a startup. Why do you ask?